Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them. And this morning we're talking to JR and Liam from the San Gennaro Co-op. Um, we have interviewed people, we have interviewed Liam uh, from the San Gennaro Co-op before, um, a few weeks ago. Uh, but I'm very happy to have Liam back on the show. And I'm also really happy to be talking to JR for the first time. Uh, so would you two mind introducing yourselves quickly for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I am Liam. Uh, like uh, like Ray said, I was on the show a little bit ago. My pronouns are he, him, and I am a games designer with the San Gennaro Co-op and Sandy Pug Games. And my name is JR Zambrano. I'm also a games designer, the San Gennaro Co-op now, which is pretty exciting. My pronouns are he, him, and I, uh, I'm from Texas. Uh, not that you can tell from my voice. Uh, excellent. Yes, very... You definitely don't sound like what an Australian would think a Texan sounds like. Um, but that's really neither here nor there. Uh, so we normally start by asking questions about like where you got, what, why you first got interested in role-playing games and then how you became a designer. Um, we already have some answers on the books for Liam. So I'm just going to ignore Liam um, because like, bleh. we'll get to Liam that's later. Fair. But I'm really interested in hearing uh, how you first got interested in role-playing games, Jaya. Uh, so I first got interested back when I was a, a little boy in summer camp. Uh, I, was, I, I must have been about seven or eight years old, and some of the cool older kids were playing a... Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but they were playing a very early version of uh, D&D. I think it was like one of the either the later first editions or early second edition and they had these like weird looking dice and uh they were talking about elves and i had just like started learning about fantasy so i had finished um reading the hobbit and was trying to make sense of lord of the rings at the time and it just seemed like the coolest thing to me ever um and then uh from there i i don't know my my path is a little weird because I got the books long before I ever played the game. Uh, so I would like read through, you know, the, the different supplements and all that stuff. Uh, that was my like brush with role-playing games. But the thing that really got me into it was the, um, the Shadowrun Super Nintendo game. Uh, I played that with my dad and then uh, we found out like, you know, I just went to go get some comic books one day and I saw like a Shadowrun book in the, uh, the gaming store and I was like, what is this? And then that, uh, that also kind of was like, oh, now I'm, I have to go out and do this right now. Uh, like 14-year-old me really liked the idea of a dragon that was running for president or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, eventually I started making some, some friends uh, who like to play role-playing games. Um, sort of fumbled my way through like figuring out you know campaigns whether or not you dress up I thought like before I had played my first session I thought you were supposed to like be in costume so I like went and got mm-hmm. a, a wizard hat and showed up to my my first I was the only one of course that that did this everyone else was just dressed normally I showed up and uh, you know was immediately that guy um <clears throat> Uh, but it was, I mean, it was, it was great. I've, I've made some of my best friends, uh, through role playing games, uh, games in general are kind of, um, how I, I keep my friendships. Uh, they're, they're something that no matter what you're doing, you can always kind of come together. Uh, as a, a person, I like having an activity to do with people. I like sharing a meal or, uh, 
sharing adventure and uh, uh, role-playing games especially are a great way to, to do that. So that's kind of my intro to role-playing games. A great way to do both of those things at the same time, often. Oh my God, yes. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the coming in costume thing. It's not a thing that I assumed about role-playing games, but I remember when we played uh, one of our World of Darkness campaigns, I dressed um, as my character for every episode, uh, every session. I'm so used to saying episode because I do actual plays all the time now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, that what a, was, what a that world was... we live in, where uh, where now people just record their role playing sessions and and put them out there, and people listen. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it is a very useful tool for me. But um, before we get too far into that, I wanted to talk about. Uh, how you went from playing games to making games. Uh, often those transitions are really interesting. I mean, the the way people learn to play games and how they got into role playing is always uh, her, not hilarious, but always like really intriguing as well. Like the fact that you mentioned like, oh, and then I played the Shadowrun Nintendo game and then I found out it was a book. And I'm like, okay, yeah, nice. We had one person, I think it might've been two different people had the same really like to me obscure background where it was um oh i started out reading choose your own adventure books and then i wrote them for Ah. my sister and then or for my family member uh and and now i and that's how i got into role-playing games and i'm like okay like some people start by getting into role-playing games by making them but really wild but i'm interested to know for you how did you go from playing shadow run to making games uh i think it's been a a uh, process that's been like waiting for the the right moment or the right push. Um, playing games, I sort of naturally gravitated towards running them. Um, I've been in in my like longtime gaming group. I'm pretty much the the go to GM. Um, so I already sort of was writing my own adventures. Uh, planning my own campaigns, that sort of thing. Um, I have lived the dream of having a campaign that runs for a couple of years as a beginning, middle, and a satisfying end. Uh, and we all, you know, had some pizza afterwards. That so was great. Um, so when I uh, when I came across the the uh, San Gennaro Discord server where everyone hangs out and they were talking about like wanting to make their own games. That's something that like I'd been interested in doing for a while. And I thought, well, here's an opportunity. Uh, so uh, let me, let me add it. Um, yeah. Wow. That's really cool. That um, I think, I think we had, um, who was it that we had on last time, Liam with you? Was it, oh, gosh. I want to say it was for some reason, my brain's saying Frederick. I don't know why. I don't um, think, was it was was it Falco? Was it Chris Falco? Falco, it was Falco. Yeah. Um, they also said that they got started when they saw the San Gennaro Co-op, pretty much, and I think that that's really interesting. That for a lot of people, well, for at least two so far from the San Gennaro <laughs> Co-op, the the impetus to get into making games is, oh wow, here is a community whose argue one of their core goals is we want to help new people learn how to do this stuff and how putting that sort of teaching mentality um explicitly at the forefront of your community is allowing people that would not normally have made games to make games 
Um, I guess, I mean, we've talked, I'm sure we talked about this last time, but I guess like, how have you found the teaching experience? How have you found that teaching experience of, um, of both drawing on the information from, uh, these sort of mentors, but also in the case of Liam being kind of a mentor. Jared, would you like to go first on that? That sounds like, uh, sure. Point of view might be. Um, so as far as like, hmm, let me think. So I think one of the things that most of us in life are waiting for is permission. Uh, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you, you grow up in society, you learn like, all right, I, I will see what other people are doing and things always seem harder than they actually are. So a lot of what people are looking for is someone to give them permission to do something. A lot of times that doesn't really happen and you have to be a certain kind of driven or you have to have that, that certain kind of uh, confidence to say, no, I'm just going to do this. Uh, and that's very hard to go from, from like, you know, everyday person uh, uh, to like, yes, you know, I think one of the biggest things to help uh, one of the easiest ways to do something is to already have done something, if that makes sense. And that works like whatever world you're in. Uh, just to kind of dip into my background, I'm a, I'm a writer. I've done everything from like uh, short stories to, you know, films and screenplay. I was a commercial writer for a while. And like one of the most uh, uh, like guaranteed ways to get work was to already have it. And that that first barrier of like, do this is arguably one of the hardest to, to cross there's that that first one and then like the third or the fourth one you know where you've gotten past the novelty and you know your friends have already come to see the first thing that you've done uh and then like what do you keep doing and what keeps you sticking with it so uh for me seeing the the co-op was uh, an opportunity for that kind of very specific permission uh, and it's not just the that someone was saying yes you can do this it was saying i want to help you do this it was saying like we're all kind of in this together and it was uh, for me a, a big part of it was finding a lot of the uh, values that i hold and kind of respect and uh, seeing them reflected in the uh, 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 what the co-op was was wanting to do and, and put out, you know, uh, I love seeing weird experimental art, like whatever it is, whether it's theater or films or or reading, you know, weirdo comics that that do unexpected and unusual things. And so seeing that sort of um, uh, chaotic but very very purely creative spirit with this uh the, our first project the short games digest really kind of caught my attention and was like okay these you know we, we want to there's a bunch of people who want to see like what can we make you know if we don't limit ourselves and what can we make when we do limit ourselves limits are often a great way to kind of spur creativity because as soon as you have a box you want to see like where where can you break out of it so it's, it's interesting that you've said in such a short amount of time, you've said two things that like we often talk about uh, here on the show. We often talk about the f- fact and we used to have a show that was all about giving advice and things. Um, and we did a whole episode on the fact that uh, creativity is more productive when you limit it. And it's about like choosing what your limitations are. Um, and so I like really connect with that, like putting your sp- like it's not about being put into a box. It's about choosing like a box to put yourself yes. into. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is, that is the good 
creative limitation, whereas like the creative limitations that other people force onto you are more negative. But also like the thing you're talking about, like the the permission thing, like we're always we always talk about ex uh, talk about explicit permission mm-hmm. um, on the show, and also the thing about uh, the 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 seeing seeing other people having done this thing uh harkens back to a thing that i learned from i learned from like technology and things mm-hmm. is that the the first it is always harder to build the first thing than it is yeah. to build the second thing uh and that's not and that you can have people so like to build the first suspension bridge incredibly difficult the second suspension bridge way more easy even if nobody working on the second suspension bridge had worked on the first because they know that it's possible exactly and knowing that something is possible is like half of the getting something done because you don't have to worry oh is this even gonna work like it will work it's just finding the permutation where it will work so it's now not it's not the it's now not the battle of is this even possible is this an impossible task and we're just throwing stuff at the wall it's no you can make role-playing games without being part of this huge company uh it is definitely doable we just need to find the path that works um and so i guess the other side of that is um this is more directed at liam is how how has that mentoring been for you and how how what are what are some of the i guess what to make this a bit more interesting and different from what we may have talked about in the past what are some of the challenges and questions that people i guess the the new designers at the san generico have come to you with and asked you to help them solve that you wouldn't have even thought of Oh, that I wouldn't have even thought of. Um, well, yeah, some really like out of context um, <laughs> questions, I suppose, about game design or making a game more so than game design that you just, um, yeah, that, I, that I surprised guess, you, I guess. I guess um, what what often surprises me is stuff that sort of like comes naturally or comes obviously to me. Um, a lot of a lot of people ask a lot of questions. Or have a lot of questions, but don't necessarily ask them about the marketing aspects of making games, and that often leads to some like interesting or weird questions, where sort of like you're asking about the very like nitty gritty or, or specifics about like how I don't know like how to how to properly structure your approach to say using Drive Through RPG to like maximize the amount of publisher points you're going to get out of a product, so that you can then create like a, a feedback loop where you can be promoting your products enough to sort of keep them on the front page and that sort of thing. Um, those are like kind of out there questions that, that I had to learn by doing it over a lot of time, but I never really sort of considered that I would be passing on to anybody. The main thing that I think a lot of people asked me before I started doing the co-op and the thing that sort of like led me to feel like doing the sort of mentorship side of the co-op thing was after the first Kickstarter I did, I st- like I started just to get messages from people asking how to do Kickstarter really well and how to do Kickstarter like at all. Never mind really well. Um, and like, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of like, there's there's just a lack of good solid information out there and approachable information. And so like, that's something that I've been carrying into the the co-op quite a bit. 
as for like act like like out of context or like weird questions from design points of views, like I I, I guess I haven't been doing enough mentoring because I don't I can't think of too many right now. Um, yeah, enough. Go ahead. No, I I think uh, you maybe haven't had so many direct questions, but like from a newer person's perspective, uh, you've been putting out a lot of real interesting stuff. Um, just seeing, for instance, as you were kind of heading up the uh, the thing that we're here to talk about, the Role Player's Guide to Heists, uh, seeing you kind of talk like the logistics of it, uh, it, it kind of points out areas where you didn't even know there were questions to ask. Um, so like like uh, you talking about like, okay, here's when, here's how we're going to kind of look at getting our, our Kickstarter uh, priced out, right? Or, or like, here's how to set our expectations for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, Is, yeah. is a, a, a huge uh, break through that like strange opacity because a lot of us, like I, I know me, most of the, the Kickstarter games I was familiar with either were the ones that like blew up and made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or the ones that like just hit their stretch goals that like I personally was interested in. Um, but like uh, uh, in neither of those cases, do you see like, okay, well, here's kind of how we figured out about where we're going to go or, or how we even arrived at what our goal is. And so kind of seeing that's been just like enlightening as all get out. Yeah, it is. It's a, the, it's always an interesting thing when you sort of like, reveal to people that the the thing that you're worried about really isn't how much money you're trying to bring in it's how many backers you're trying to get that was like that yeah it's always like a a good conversation wherever it happens and yeah it was it was a it was a good evening in the the co-op when i sort of like walked people through how that like works it's not it's not super important how much money you're trying to raise it's a question of do we think we can get 500 400 300 people to back it in the first place wow is that because like is that just because like like money that people are going to give up kind of averages out. And so like, it's more about managing the number of people you can get interested in a, a topic. Yeah. To, to a degree, you can sort of guess what your primary, like pro like, like your primary tier is going to be. And you should probably structure a Kickstarter around what that primary tier is for, for the, the, uh, for, for the heist, it's going to be the hardcover thing. But if you average that with what you think your second most popular tier is going to be, say your PDF, you've kind of got a rough estimate of how many people you need on board overall. And like that, that number is not concrete or anything. It'll swing a little bit up or down. But once you have that number, you can kind of start going like, okay, well, do we need to price this a little bit less? Can we afford to price it a little more? What do we, what do we reasonably expect our reach is when we like examine our social media accounts and like our gen, like our, our past reach and how many, you know, how many books we sell on drive through or whatever. And once we all kind of figured that out, that's, that's kind of how you come up with your final numbers. Yeah. Wow. Cause I was, I definitely was thinking, well, first you've got to work out. I would have thought it would be based around how much do I need to make this thing? And oh, then, oh yeah, sure. And then just I, get I, as many people as I can. <laughs> but it's a very good point. And I've, I've certainly run into that with convention organization stuff is like, sure. We want to do this thing. Does the community we're in, and, and when community, I'm using the more Western definition of community, that is the physical location you're in, yeah. um, rather than the people. Does the does the amount of people around us support the actual event that we want to do? And right. can we even get 
people through. Whereas I didn't really necessarily think of that as a direct thought for Kickstarters, but it does make a lot of sense. And now I'm terrified again. Right? Like it, it, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. You're like, oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, cool. I mean, are there, are there even 10 people that are interested in this product? Cause if not, <laughs> especially when you're talking about like a digital product or a PDF or a print on demand, obviously like we talk a lot about how we need to be paying ourselves more and all that sort of thing. But one of the powers, one of the benefits behind like digital stuff is like you can be pretty flex- flexible in that pricing. So long as we get, you know, however much money it's going to take to pay everybody, it doesn't really matter how much the PDF costs. I mean, we need to worry about like pricing like the market and making sure that we're not like underselling ourselves and we want like a value to the product itself. But like within that barrier, there's a lot of wiggle room that you can start like figuring out how to make something work so long as you're getting enough people in is it better do we think that we can get 500 people at a 25 dollar pdf or do we need to get 300 people at a 30 dollar pdf or you know that's just just numbers but you get the point yeah wow that's one that's wild i know that a problem that i've been struggling with uh lately is um in this is related to kickstarters and this might enter into your equation is uh, as well is this um we see a lot in the rpg industry um Kickstarters that promise a lot of physical rewards, uh, both as stretch goals and as high tier rewards. Um, so, with, you know, like, oh, custom dice for the game, or like, if we reach this stretch goal, we'll do a, we'll do a weird other, we'll, do, we'll basically make a whole new product that is just mm-hmm. tangentially related. And it's like, wow. And, you know, we've got stories of whole companies almost going bankrupt because of trying to fulfill these goals because they didn't adequately think about shipping or whatever. And so I know that for me, when I was thinking about running Kickstarters in the future, I was like, I'm just not going to do anything that requires anything physical to exist because that's, as a person that lives in Australia, that just seems like a thing that's never interested me. When I see like a physical product on Kickstarter, I'm like, oh, well, I'm in Australia, so that's not for me. If I lived in Timbuktu, it would be easier to get physical rewards than when you live in Australia, Um, especially if it's an American Kickstarter. It's way easier to ship to Nepal than it is to ship rewards to Australia because of pricing, Um, which is wild. Um, But I I guess my my, my point there is like, do you think that it's even possible to do non-physical reward Kickstarters for RPG things? Can you do an RPG, a Kickstarter for an RPG where it's like, oh, we're not even going to have a book that you can print. It's only going to be a digital digital thing. Is that even, do you think that could even work? Yeah, I think so. I've seen, I've seen or I mean, sometimes if you pair it with like, a lot of people pair it with print-on-demand stuff. I mean, that's a similar approach that we're doing on the heist book, um, print-on-demand, and that, that lowers your barrier to entry quite a bit. I, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that. Um, I've seen successful Kickstarters that do just digital rewards. I think there is a, a trend toward really buffing out that, like, you know, bits thing. Because it gets backers. People like getting minis, and people like getting, like, mm. tokens and stuff. But, like, I don't know. In in In... What I have talked to people and when I've like read into it and stuff, like the amount of money you get back for doing all that stuff and the amount of hassle and time and work you put in, I'm not really sure it actually evens all that much out in the end. And like, I don't know. If you're looking to make money to make a product, I really don't see 
that much benefit in like bulking out your Kickstarter so much that all, almost always has delays involved in it. You like you you open yourself up to like overspend in lots of ways. Like a quick a quick sort of fun story about um, my very first Kickstarter was called Orc Stabber, and um, it was a lot of fun. It was a, a, a single page RPG made by an orc. And the concept that I came up with was kind of like I wanted to try out Kickstarter and I wanted to come up with a product that I could sell pretty quickly and I could design very quickly and I could create by myself. Um, and so that kind of meant something that I could print usually like at home. So I just I made up this orc character with with my friend Gabriel Komisar and we made the Kickstarter as the orc and we wrote the game as the orc. And like we created this like community around this this character Lim Gomazar, um, and had a blast running it. But once it all wrapped, we had we had expected to have maybe a hundred bucks and like ten people to mail a game out to, and we had three thousand five hundred dollars and like nearly four hundred, I think, or three hundred plus backers. And so we were suddenly faced with I think the thing that a lot of people on Kickstarter get where they go well, we can't just send them what we said we'd give them. They've given us so much money. We need to do something else. So we ended up including like badges and a little expansion thing. And I, I made an ARG where we gave someone a, a knife. And like we added all this stuff on at the end. And once once I mailed it all out, it, it sort of dawned on me that like that had cost a great deal of money and taken a lot of time and done a lot of stress on us to do all of those extra bits. And I hadn't added really all that much to the thing. And like most people, when they talk about Orc Stabber, like I barely saw anyone mentioning half the stuff that we put in, put in the packets. Like most people were just talking about the game and like, that's, it's wild. Like you talk about the sentiment that led to that and it's wild. Like I would never even think that way. I would never (laughs) even think, I would never even think, Oh, people paid a lot more people bought this and gave me more money. I need to, I need to make the game higher value. I'd be like, cool. A lot of people bought the game. I get to, I get to eat dessert now with my yeah, dinners well, instead of just having dinner. Why? I, uh, let's let's say Orc Stabber quickly just um, dissolved me of that, and and I have been very um, conservative and arguing for a conservative approach to Kickstarters. Uh, since then both in americana we had one or two stretch goals that were pretty easy to fulfill and i haven't added anything extra and in heists we are i i am constantly telling people that we cannot do more than what we've already talked about do i've had to shoot down a couple of wild stretch goal ideas um yeah i was well, gonna, just be, yeah just because i said that i think we should get the crew together and steal an actual diamond <laughs> from you know a museum somewhere. Uh, well, we do have that actual heist that we are actually going to do later. That's but that's we're gonna we're gonna keep that one under wraps. Maybe I was gonna say be. yeah, do do a stretch goal. If we get you know two million dollars, we will steal the Declaration of Independence. Oh we man, are, we're, <laughs> Liam, I mean, Liam, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'll start writing up some plans. Um, I mean, no one's a, we, using it. It's just sitting there. We did have a um, we did have a, a, a joke tier idea that someone said that was going to be like twenty thousand dollars or something, and it was just going to be called like "We steal your money and we don't give you anything; we just take the twenty k." That's pretty. That's pretty <laughs> funny. Um, I had a I had a Patreon goal 
idea for a while when I was setting up my Patreon that was, I mean, I had a bunch of wild ideas for high tiers because it's like, I'm sitting here making these, why not? But I had one that was um, like, if you pay me, if we, if we raise a hundred thousand uh, a a month, rather, I, I will just stop doing this. You can pay me to stop. If you don't want me to, if you don't want me to make content anymore, that's the way you can do that. If you think my content's bad and I shouldn't be making it, you can pay me to not make it. Um, but I guess we should talk a little bit more about. I say a little bit more. We should t- definitely talk a bit more about um, the role players guide. Role players guide to heists. Um, obviously, this is the first Kickstarter from the San Gennaro Co-op. Um, which is, I mean, I, I really wanted to talk to you about like how Kickstarter and stuff is working. So it's worth mentioning a bit more in detail, like what that is. Um, so what is the role players guide to heists? Uh, seeing as we've already touched on it. Um, and we did talk about it in the previous interview, but indeed. now we're Yeah, we'll get in more detail here. Well, the role players guide to heists is a system agnostic uh, collection of 25 heists, or rather it is a collection of 25 system agnostic heists that uh, range across a bunch of different genres and are written in a standardized style that will allow you to mix and match or drop these heists into any campaign that you're running, and they'll be easily modifiable and all that stuff. They'll come with pretty maps, um, and they'll also come with essays on like the theory behind writing heists or running heists or what heists mean. Um, among other things, um, that that's it's a pretty ba- like simple. I was gonna say basic, but that's not true. It's a pretty simple project. It's it's we, like uh, we give yeah. you everything you need to run a heist, except for the actual mechanics, uh, because we don't know what system you're playing. But uh, whatever it is, just drop in what you need. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was inspired in part by um, there was a, a book that came out a little bit ago called The Role Players Guide to character backstories i think it's called and like the the general um there there was a sort of a general talk of like having more system agnostic like setting or game materials on kickstarter or on on twitter a while ago and between those two and me sitting and watching oceans eight like last year um i sort of thought that this would be a really really cool book but i I sat on it for a long time because i was doing americana and a bunch of other projects and once the co-op got going, it like hit me like, whoa, this is probably like the perfect thing for the co-op, right? Because 25 heists can be split amongst people pretty easily. It's, it's a project to teach what is probably one of the most valuable skills a designer can have right now, that is running a Kickstarter. Like that's, that's how most people I think in this industry are getting paid to do the thing that they want to do. And it's also a real quality project that will bring in more funds and more attention to the co-op itself. So, like, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, definitely. I think um, what you're saying about the system um, setting and system agnostic um, content, I, it, I've seen... I remember the first time I encountered that was No Security, which is... Mm a bunch of mm-hmm. horror scenarios set during the Great Depression by Caleb Stokes, who made Red Markets. It was like the first thing, I think, that he put out publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to see. I guess interesting is possibly the wrong word. But it's it's cool how that 
sort of concept is being taken uh, with heists as well is kind of wild, especially because like I'm I'm very much drawing a through a connecting line between those two projects purely because Caleb has also done a lot of heist stuff when they've done actual play content for role playing public radio. So that's just like my <laughs> thought filter being like, oh, these things are connected. It's like, they're not really connected. Um, but yeah, you do make a good point about like the fact that most people in the industry are getting paid by running Kickstarters. Like a lot of people are starting out with small projects that are designed to get them. I know that for my own sort of trajectory, it's like need to produce content that doesn't require Kickstarter to get made so that I can earn enough money to have the backing just to get a Kickstarter up and running because you basically need a Kickstarter to do a Kickstarter at this point is Mm. the feeling that a lot of people have. You need an initial investment of capital. Um, I guess what has been... What sort of, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing the, the San Gennaro co-op, you're doing all this stuff collectively together, um, but you're also developing these skills for designers to then take and do their own projects separately um, or even propose their own projects within the co-op. Um, so I guess this might be a better question for JR of like how, how has working on this Kickstarter changed how you would view doing a kickstarter of your own or or is or is doing a kickstarter of your own even a thing that is is uh, in, in in your mind's eye yeah um i would say that it uh, along with the the sort of strange behind the scenes look at the matrix see the the, the code of reality for what it is kind of uh, uh in knowledge i've i've gained watching liam plan all of this um <clears throat> It's also, uh, it, it's it's given me cause to think about like, okay, uh, it feels possible, right? It doesn't just feel like, I mean, it, it obviously is a lot of work and things may or may not be uh, successful, but it, it, it feels like um, there's there's something inspiring about watching a, a community kind of come together and say, let's, let's do this. And then seeing people doing the kind of work that you want to be doing and, and feeling like, okay, I can, I can support that. But not only do I support that, I feel like I'm a part of it. Um, I got this a lot. For, I feel this a lot. And it's kind of a, a thing that I have been learning uh, through my own like theater stuff. Uh, I, I'm heavily involved in local theater. And, and one of the, the kind of parallels here is seeing the kind of people that are making the work that you want to see uh, and feeling like, I, I want to help them do stuff. And then in turn, I feel like they're helping me do my own stuff. And collectively, our little corner of the world is getting way more radical uh, and awesome uh, be- because of it. And so it, it kind of pushes you to want to do that, even if you hadn't have been thinking about it before. Uh, like, I, I don't know if I would have uh, uh, given it more thought than I have already if not for the the, the co-op, uh, because it feels like, okay, if, if all of these people are going to be making awesome games, like I, I should be too, because I, I like them all. And like, you know, if we make the, the RPG community that much more cool uh, be, because of it, then, then great, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. Um, it's interesting, as you were talking, I was thinking about how kind of there's a, almost like a, 
kind of like a bell curve kind of deal going on in terms of at least for my at least rather for my own thought processes here is that like before I really knew what went into a Kickstarter, it felt like, oh, cool, you've got to have a cool idea and do some presentation stuff and then you can get all the money that you need to like right. develop it into an idea. But then you learn more about a Kickstarter and so it, like, it starts off being like, oh, yeah, the barrier to entry is not that high. Then you learn a little bit about like what goes into a Kickstarter. It's like the barrier to entry is super high because you basically, in order for the thing to be successful, you kind of need to have it done before it goes to Kickstarter. Um, and then that money is just about, at least in the role-playing game industry, it very much is like have your first draft of your thing done and have an idea of the – have already discussed quotes with like the artists you need to get and things like that. And it's just about getting the money to pay them um, is a lot of the sort of arc. Um, so then it's like, oh, wow, this is actually like up here. And then it's you, you come down the other side and it's like, well, so how do we get to those places? And like – the part where it where where you where you have the little bit of knowledge about how a Kickstarter is done and it looks super difficult is because you don't know how to get from I have an idea to I have planned out this idea enough that all I need now is a little bit of cash uh, to disperse and get going. You don't know you don't necessarily know how much of that planning can be done without money. When you're mm. over, when you're when you're sort of at that high point in that curve with the little bit of knowledge, um, I guess sort of coming through that idea, um, what has been, what sort of work has been done for the role players guide to heists to get it to the point where you're going to Kickstarter. I mean, you're going to Kickstarter tomorrow as of recording this, like three days ago as of release. Uh, so yeah, what is, what has, what is, what is, does all the work you've already done look like? And what does the work that you're going to do after the Kickstarter look like? Well, we got the, um, we wrote, we wrote three heists all the way through, um, which we put together for a preview pack. We've got artists lined up and we've got the work sort of preliminarily like, what's the word for it, rationed out amongst the various different people on the project. Um, we, we've secured sort of who we know is going to be doing what jobs. It's, for me, been important running the project that we don't have everyone putting in a whole bunch of labor for a project that we don't know will work or not yet. We're, we're you know, it, it's fashionable, I think, to say like, oh, it's, it's definitely going to work. We're definitely going to succeed because like that's how you succeed here. But like to, to pull back the veil... I don't know if we're going to fund. I really hope we do. Um, and we're going to put in a lot of work to make sure that we have the highest chance possible. But if we don't, I certainly don't want, you know, a bunch of people who have put, a, who have put in a lot of time and a bunch of effort and then not get compensated for it. Big part of the co-op is making sure people get compensated for their labor. So it was originally, I was just going to write a couple of heists and, and put it together myself. And then JR volunteered to do one of their own. And so we have, um, like I say, we've got our three heist preview pack. Um, and hopefully that'll give people a good taste of what to expect. And then we are going to write the remaining 22 heists after we get funded. And we will give our two map artists a bunch of cash to make more maps like the, uh, the, the Rouge Theater 
uh, map, which is the the only one that has a currently illustrated map as of the preview pack. Uh, we also have a one of our sample uh, heist essays in the preview pack as well. Oh yeah, uh, true. Yeah, Le- Liam and I have have together collectively written the uh, the the preview pack that you can see, and then. Uh, there's some phenomenal maps in there. If you like that isometric s- style uh, stuff, it's it's great. What I like is that we have the two different artists for the maps, and they both have like a semi different flavor to yeah. their stuff. So it it means that you kind of have like a variety going in, and we have two different artists doing the internal art. So I I always like it when my books have a little bit of a different feel to each chunk of it, like that. Yeah, I mean that's kind of an interesting thing that's worth talking about the co-op. A lot of like small game i mean indie game developers are in the rpg space i mean we're kind of almost all indie but definitely the ones that call themselves indie mm-hmm. um you're often contracting your art out to people that i mean they might not have an interest in role-playing games and they might do a lot of work on role-playing games but they're not like artists that you have necessarily gone to before or that you have like a tight relationship with whereas like for example Hasbro and their subsidiary Wizards <laughs> of the Coast have artists that work for them. In a lot of the way, it kind of you've kind of got this weird synthesis with the um, with the co-op where you have artists in the co-op and you have layout people in the co-op and you have editors in the co-op. It's not just people that are that we normally think of as game designers, the people writing the games, it's all of the game designers, all of these game developers, all of the people like that are part of that are in the co-op, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, The the two map artists are not current um, co-op members, although I'm I'm fair enough, sort of hopeful that Axe Bane or Daniel uh, with Hall will join us at some point, but um, right, we are two artists who are doing sort of the internal artwork for each heist, the the sort of pictures, the loot or the security or the enemies and stuff. Those are um, co-op members. So yeah, there there is, like you're saying, like a synthesis. You have to, even within the co-op model, I think you have to kind of look at your needs and see where you can, you know, where, where outsourcing is better than trying to do some stuff internally. And uh, like uh, you were saying, uh, uh, Ray, you're hitting on something uh, uh, super exciting, which is like it, it takes a lot to make a, a game. And if you're kind of on your own, you have to do all of it. And you may or may not have the knowledge to do it or know that it even needs to be done. Um, I, I, there's been this incredible thing happening in the last, I want to say, week or so. And correct me if I'm wrong, Liam, but we had someone someone join up and uh, start like working out some some graphic design just for for press release uh, kind of things and and for for putting out like PR and uh, marketing, which is uh, there's just a, a huge amount of effort that goes in. And I think one of the best things about our uh, co-op is that it's <clears throat> uh, it, it's a chance for everyone that that has a a, a skill uh, to say, look, I can do this. Let me let me do this. For you guys, it, it com- comes back to that like uh, uh, permission, right? You're looking for someone to say, "Yeah, do this thing that you're good at," and, and for a reason you really want to, and get paid for it. Yeah, yeah. and get yeah. paid and, for and, it. And and because you're like this collective and this community of people, you do you do. It means that there is an even lower barrier to entry there for someone to be part of making a game. Like if 
if you're someone that only does that only really knows how to I say only if you're someone that like does illustration and is really interested in role playing games but doesn't really understand how to write mechanics or even necessarily setting you still might you might not necessarily consciously know that you want to write a role playing game but you still feel like I want to be involved somehow mm-hmm. but you you might think oh well I don't really know I can't make a game but if but you do have a skill that many game designers other game designers don't have and that is like I can't do art for my games and so there's a bunch of my games that aren't released because I can't afford to pay an artist and I can't do the art myself and so they're just sort of sitting there as writing documents waiting for me to have money whereas you have kind of a road to getting those sort of products off the ground because you have this community and you've worked to build that over such a, I mean, at such a short time, like I feel like yeah. this engineering cops only really existed this year, like maybe this quarter of this year. I don't yeah, know. This for quarter, sure. Yeah. It's been a couple of months. It really hasn't been that long. And you've you done know, the other- so much in so little time. You've built this massive community and you've gotten almost two product. I mean, you've gotten one product out and you've, and you're already onto your first Kickstarter. Number one bestseller on drive through RPG. Just yeah, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, did this the short game digest did that well? Yeah, yeah. It did. That's yeah, so it impressive. It, it got knocked off the top spot by um, Scion. Uh, it's it's Kickstarter delivering, which and oh, Scion also, finally delivered. And hey. then also, was it Shadowrun came out? Something uh, two fairly large, two yeah, fairly Shadow- like yeah, well backed things came out and knocked us off the top spot. But for like. A good 24 hours, we were the top sellers. You know, the other thing about what you're saying there is also, you know, there are lots of people in the co-op right now who joined us and said almost verbatim what you did. Like, I have these skills, but I don't know how to make games. And like, while like we sort of thrust them into making games on the Short Game Digest 1, the general design of the co-op is we can be like, okay, cool. You could do that thing. That's neat come on and like do that thing on this project. We'll get you paid and you can like be accredited, whatever it is that you are. But hey, you want to learn how to make games. If you want to figure out designing, if you want to do whatever it is that you feel like you're missing, there's all these other rooms in our server where people are doing that and showing other people how to do that. We have, it's not games design as such, but right now going on at this minute, we have people teaching people how to do marketing for themselves and each other. Mm -hmm. We have a room for showing off how to do social media stuff. We have a marketing team that I am going to encourage to pull other people on board to show the ropes of like reaching out to people. Like you've, you've talked to Basilisk a whole bunch. Yeah. Basilisk has all kinds of info and knowledge and wisdom to share with the world. We have, um, a, a layout sort of mentorship program that's just being, that's just getting off the ground now where are the people who are slightly more talented at layout are going, hey, here's how you're laying something out. We had to verify the drive-through account that we just started up for the Centenary Co-op because that's how that works. And like the very first thing I thought as soon as I started was, well, heck, time for y'all to make some small projects if you're willing and you can practice and learn how to lay out your own documents or how to create your own character sheets or whatever. And that's something that you can take going forward. Yeah. So we not, have, go on. I was just going to say, was, we have just, that, that, a streamlined uh, sort of path where you can go from being whatever it is you are now to getting those skills to become the other things that you want to be. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, 
we've you've also helped two people learn how to do interviews um, with uh, <laughs> the last two interviews that uh, we've done. Um, and I was also going to say that uh, it is impressive the I mean, you're kind of based in the United States, but you're pulling in people from a lot of different areas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it is worth talking about what something that I know that I'm interested in is making sure that there are many different voices in role-playing games. Um, and like for me, what that means is trying to interview people from all different areas of the industry, but also all different um, places around the world. Um, obviously I'm limited by the fact that I only speak English, so I have to interview people that know English. Um, but, uh, what kind of, what kind of, I guess I want to give you an opportunity to kind of celebrate the diversity of your community here, because I know that when I was doing shout outs, uh, in the, when the short game digest launched and also getting ready to do this interview, I was asking questions on the discord about, um, you know, who was involved in this and how can I celebrate their uniqueness Didn't phrase it that way, but I did ask that sort of question. So I guess I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about that if you feel comfortable. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say uh, from my own experience um, that like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Latinx, I'm a Mexican American uh, uh, designer, writer. And um, it, I don't know, it feels pretty amazing to to see the different kinds of uh, voices out there and to kind of see the the breadth of experience. Um, I know societally we're going through this like incredibly painful lurching, dragging ourselves kind of progressively forward, you know, and it's uh, uh, not not without cost, certainly, but like uh, it's it's been so amazing to see so many different kinds of people have that like, oh, I, I can actually do this and my voice uh, applies here. I know there are people who are uh, uh, non-binary in the co-op. I, I know there are people who are, um, uh, more, I mean, queer and of uh, various like uh, places in the world. So um, it, it feels pretty amazing to, to live that um that's something that uh, it's it's hard to do especially you know um if you're making stuff uh today right it's there's been so much of like these are the people they get to make things and they're the only people and so uh, the fact that we're mostly doing this in english right that's that's a a huge thing that i think is still kind of changing or they're all kind of adapting um uh so it's it's encouraging to see um, not just that that there are you know here's the occasional uh, person of color writing something, but here's a whole community that that uh, celebrates its own diverseness, um, but like is is encouraging of of everyone. It, it feels like that that shift in the wind is getting that much closer. Yeah, and yeah. also you're celebrating it. You're celebrating that diversity on your own terms rather than like, yeah. oh, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're of this ethnic uh, group. So you get to write the this ethnic group section of the book rather than, like you, it's you get to write the section of the book that you want to write. Like you can put in there what you want to put in there. You're not, yeah. you're not being 
you, it's not tokenism, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 saying like, what do you want to do? Like, get out there and and be your glorious weird self uh, because you've got a lot to say, and you know it's amazing. Uh, that's the vibe I get, anyway. Yeah, I I like as a, as a queer person, I definitely feel like sometimes the the way how the TTRPG industry, the the big players anyway, tend to try to like kind of court diversity and inclusivity is through like what you said, like tokenism. It's almost always like we have this part of the book that wants to talk about, you know, queer identity or sex work or something. So if you have been a sex worker or you're queer, here's your chance to get into games. It's like, well, yeah, I got plenty of stories about like being my identity, but like also it's not the only like, right. Like that's not my only thing. Like it's, and it's weird that that, I feel like there's a pressure on marginalized people in our in in a lot of communities, and it, like it's not just TTRPGs, but you know that's society is that way, and so it carries over here. So like, well, you're marginalized. That's your thing. That's like what you're gonna be here. That's the art that you're gonna produce is gonna be all about how you're like a marginalized person and how that affects you throughout your entire career. And it's like, I don't know, like art made yeah, by you, marginalized people. You kind people of have to, from my point of view. Yeah, you kind of have to perform your marginality almost. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, <clears throat> like, any any kind of creative or, like, artistic thing especially, it feels like that that space is hard uh, won. Um, just kind of going on a, another little theatrical ta- a tangent here for a second. Um, it's... <clears throat> uh, uh, in the last, I want to say two or three years, especially there's there's been a a big boom in and, and push towards diversity, uh, at least in in my little corner of the world. Uh, so there's been like an interesting like like journey of of seeing like okay, well you can do whatever you want. Um, like I think the first thing I ever directed was a a show that was kind of like the Brave Little Toaster. Everyone played objects that came to life, uh, and then coming around and sort of like embracing you know your your identity. Um, I am uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, talking here like I did. I did a, a a you know now I'm making the the Day of the Dead uh, show, and so like finding a way to like say yes this is who i am and i'm i'm uh, expressing that on my own terms because sometimes like you know i'm i'm very much in touch with myself and sometimes i just want to see like you know robots lasers and uh, uh stealing diamonds out of vaults mm-hmm. yeah indeed and I'm, and that's like a brilliant sentiment i think to end this interview on um <laughs> is talking about that um it has been wonderful talking to you both. Um, just a pleasure having you on the show and, and getting you to talk about like how learning Kickstarter works. Obviously, there's so much more we could talk about about learning just about Kickstarter, um, but this was sort of to give an insight into how the co-op is doing it. Uh, so I wanted to thank you uh, both for being on the show. Um, if people want to find more from you, uh JR, where can people find you online and things like that? Uh, I am on Twitter and I am uh, uh, making baby steps on Instagram. My partner has been getting me to do that. So uh, she is learning very much that it's an uphill battle. I'm, uh, I'm the worst millennial. I don't, I, I'm, I'm kind of just now learning how uh, social media and being online actually works. 
Uh, I so, never used to take photos like my whole life. I was just like, ah, I don't yeah. need photos because I mean, I have a really good memory. So I'm like, I don't need photos. Uh, and then, and now lately I've, I've, I'm like always taking selfies now. Always. I feel so seen right now. I feel so seen. Um, uh, uh, but you can also find uh, me on the uh, San Genero Co-ops Discord. Um, and you can also, uh, and that's, you know, that where any of stuff that I have out on DriveThruRPG is right now. So yeah. that's me. Liam? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm Sandy Pug Games basically everywhere. Um, if I, I have a website that I haven't updated in a year and a half, so be sure to check that out for all the latest gossip. Um, I am on DriveThruRPG and Itch, both uh, Sandy Pug Games, and obviously I'm at the San Gennaro Co-op Discord if you want to come and say hi. The other thing as well is for the co-op as a group, we just got our Twitter set up, so you can go and check that out too. Uh, again, just San Gennaro Co-op. Indeed. Uh, and we will have links to all of those things down below. Uh, and if you want to hear our other interview with the San Gennaro Co-op, uh, there will be a link to that as well. Uh, and we have other interviews. You can t- uh, click on the interview tag uh, to listen to all of our interviews. We have interviews with game designers. Uh, we have interviews with trivia show hosts and interviews with... Uh, editors and things like that that work in games as well. Um, So do check that out. Uh, And thank you for listening. And also thank you too for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, Before we go, uh, we have something that we're doing for the Role Players Guide to Heists that we should tell all of your wonderful listeners. Right now, um, if you go on Twitter and you look up the San Gennaro Co-op, you'll see the rules for this. But we're doing a little contest where if you make up a heist sona, uh, a heist persona, this could be anything, any genre, any kind of wacky thing. Mine's a, a dimensional hopping cyberpunk who's trying to steal their soul back from an angel. You know, yeah. anything you like, a cool, like, a heisty person. You write up a little bio, maybe you draw a picture, you drop the hashtag uh, heist sona and a link to the Kickstarter. We will find your tweet. We will tell you how cool you are, and we'll also enter you into a prize drawing where your character may end up in the book as our sidebar content person. Usually if you want your stuff in the book, you're going to have to give us a whole bunch of money. But here, all you got to do is write something cool, which is a lot easier. That sounds amazing. And I can't wait to go and write up a bio for my, for, for my own heist sona. Um, so don't forget to check that out on Twitter. Uh, But for now, farewell from the past, I'm Ray.